You're listening to the Life Church Livonia podcast, a show where you can hear the teachings from our weekend gatherings. You can catch the full service on our Facebook or YouTube and head over to our website if you'd like to give. Here we're real people following a real God and experiencing real life. Welcome to Life Church Livonia. Hey, good morning, Life Church Livonia. It's great to be here with you today. My name's Alex. I'm one of the pastors on staff here, and it's my privilege to bring God's word to you today. Uh, I believe that God has brought you here and brought me here on purpose this morning because he has something that he wants to speak to us today. We've been in the book of Jonah here at Life Church Livonia over the past couple weeks. In week one, <clears throat> we looked at uh, how God calls Jonah to go to Nineveh, his sworn enemies, and to preach to them. Jonah runs away. He ends up being thrown into the sea at the end of chapter 1. And in chapter 2, he gets swallowed by this great fish and has a heart-to-heart moment with God. And as we've been walking through the book of Jonah, we've seen that uh, God has a heart for the lost. And we believe that that heart for the lost cause is meant to become our cause. And here at Life Church Livonia, we believe that God wants to bring lost people to know him this fall. And in the book of Jonah, God sends Jonah to evangelize to his greatest enemies in the midst of great national wounds, of deep racial tensions, of great reluctance, and even greater movements of God. <clears throat> and in this week, we're going to be looking at chapter 3 as the story kind of climaxes as Jonah finally arrives in Nineveh. And like I said, I really believe that God wants to speak something to Jonah, to Nineveh, and to us in this chapter today. But before we get to that, out of curiosity, how many of you are bakers or cooks or some kind of home chef? Well, I'm not, okay? And if you're sitting next to someone who raised their hand and who is a great cook, say thank you for your service, okay? Because I had a favorite bachelor dish that I used to make. I still make it from time to time. And this dish was white rice uh, with barbecue sauce, hot sauce, and a little bit of sour cream. (laughs) I love this dish. I think it tastes great. And my wife, Amber, the first time I made it after we got married, she just gave me this look of like, what? is wrong with you (laughs) she she was like what is that and i explained my secret recipe for the great bachelor barbecue rice dish and she just said that is so disgusting how can you eat that and i said i don't know what you don't like about it and still to this day i'm not sure what she doesn't like about it but if you're a home cook the prized possession of every home cook of which i am not is the secret family recipe Anyone here got secret secret family recipes? You can put them in the chat. Uh, make sure you don't confuse tablespoons and teaspoons. I've made that mistake one too many times. Anyway, secret family recipes. If you've got them, so did this gentleman named Danny Meyer. Danny Meyer is a chef who has multiple Michelin star restaurants. And Michelin star restaurants, that's the highest uh, honor you can get as a chef. He is creme de la creme top of the global uh, chef community. Uh, He's also the inventor and founder of the chain Shake Shack, which I spent far too much time at in college. Thank you, Jackson, Michigan, for that. Anyway, while Danny was working on opening a new restaurant, he's kind of at the top of his game. This is, you know, maybe 2017, 2016. He's working on opening this restaurant, Blue Smoke, a barbecue place in New York uh, that's going to be really high-end. 
He wanted to uh, have a menu that really kind of went with that picnic, barbecue, outdoor kind of theme. And he was uh, sure that one of the premier dishes was going to be his grandma's secret recipe for the potato salad. Now, that was one of Danny's favorite things to eat growing up. It was part of why he loved cooking, was his grandma's famous potato salad. And uh, he tried to create the potato salad, recreate it as his, you know, he's now this kind of top global chef. And he tried to recreate it many times, but he didn't have the secret recipe. And so every time it just wasn't quite right. And then unfortunately his grandmother passed away and, and he inherited some of her secret recipes, written, you know, handwritten on those three by five cards. And so as they're deciding the menu for blue smoke, he goes, you know what, we got to get my grandma's secret recipe for this potato salad. So he gets it. He brings it into his sous chefs. He says, I want you to make this. I'm going to come back in a little bit. I'm going to check and make sure it's right. So they call him back. He comes and checks on it. He takes that first spoonful and just mm, all of the memories, the nostalgia, these moments come rushing back. And as Danny groans and nods in approval, he was like, this is perfect. What was the secret recipe? And the sous chefs start laughing at him. And he goes, what? What's so funny about my grandma's secret recipe? And I'll tell you the answer to that in just a little bit. What do you think the secret recipe was for his grandma's potato salad? It's not just Danny that's searching for secret recipes. It's us, though, too, right? Many of us feel like that there are secret recipes to things in life that we just don't have access to and somehow other people do. We want to know the secret recipe for being successful at work and at home. We want the secret recipe for good health. We want the secret recipe for getting good grades while playing sports and having friends. We want the secret recipe to a happy marriage. We want the secret recipe to a good relationship with God. And when it comes to the Christian life, it can often feel like other people have this secret recipe that we're somehow just missing. We look at the people whom we admire. Maybe we admire how they've reached people who are far from God. Maybe we admire their work in the mission field. Maybe we admire their knowledge of scripture. Maybe we admire the way they love difficult people. And I, I just want you to pause in this moment and bring to mind someone whom you admire in the Christian life. Someone whom you look at and go, man, I would love to be like them when I grow up in Jesus, right? Who's that person and what do you think is the secret recipe for their life with God? Is it the amount of time they read the Bible? Is it their life of worship? Is it their engagement in community? Is it the small groups they've been in? Is it the rhythms of meditation and silence with the Holy Spirit that they have? Is it their rule of life? Is it the way they use their spiritual gifts? What's their secret recipe to a great life in God? Well, today, I think we're going to find the answer to that question in Jonah chapter 3. So whether you've been following Jesus for a long time, you're new to the faith, or you're here today and you don't know Jesus and you're wondering if maybe you're going to find him, I believe that this chapter has something for each of us. Now, Jonah is not someone I would encourage you to model your Christian walk after, okay? He is kind of a mess of a guy. I wouldn't encourage you to mimic his evangelistic style, his behavior toward other people, the way he loves his enemies. I wouldn't really encourage you to mimic anything about Jonah's life. He's not a spiritual role model. He's a really broken guy who struggles to forgive people, who needs to learn how to love better, who uh, runs away from God and struggles with disobedience. <clears throat> But that's kind of what I like about him, right? He's just like us. He's a normal broken person who God wants to use to do something extraordinary. 
And in the first book, the first chapter, I'm sorry, of the book of Jonah, God calls Jonah to love his enemies and Jonah runs away. And the chapter ends with him being thrown in the sea, like I said earlier. In the second chapter, God sends this great fish to swallow Jonah. And in the belly of this fish for three days and three nights, Jonah has a a heart to heart with God and comes to a repentance. And he returns to God and decides to get back on God's mission and stop running away. Now, the whole book surrounds God's call to Jonah to go and preach to his enemies, the Ninevites. Now, a little history, Nineveh was a great city, a huge city. In the book, uh, in this chapter we're going to read in a second, it says that it took three days to walk across the city. So, a really massive city. And um, the, it was the, became the capital of the first great empire of the world, the Empire of Assyria. The Assyrians were known for their creative brutality in war. They were known for their sexual promiscuity, and they were known for the temple of the goddess Ishtar. Nineveh was uh, an epicenter of the cult of Ishtar. And Ishtar was the goddess of war, of love, and of sex. And the Ninevites worshipped in kind. There were deep rifts of pain, deep rifts of pain between Assyria and Nineveh and Israel. Rifts that were ideological, rifts that were racial, rifts that were uh, really, really, really painful and historical from uh, brutality from the Assyrians towards the Israelites. And the third chapter of Jonah is the climax of the story, where Jonah finally comes face to face with his enemies and obeys God. And this is what happens in the first verse of that chapter. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Notice it says the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. I want you to hold on to that because at the end we're going to come back to that. That's really important. So don't let go of it. Remember that. But we're going to wait to the end to talk about it. Now, if you were to read this after chapter 2, you would assume that Jonah somehow got spit up maybe by the fish right on the shores of Nineveh. Um, But that's not how it happened because unless we understand the geography of the ancient world a little bit, we're not going to understand there is no shores of Nineveh. Nineveh is not on the ocean. It's quite far inland. And I want to show you a map here to understand what happened between the time Jonah got thrown up and where we are right now in chapter 3. So here, this little green line, this little little baby portion here, that's Jonah's time in the fish. And right here, this purple line going all the way over here, That's Jonah's journey to Nineveh. Okay, so this is how far he had to travel after he gets spit up. And this Gath Heifer is where he started. From where Jonah gets spit up to Nineveh is about 700 miles. From where he started in Gath Heifer to Nineveh, that's about 400 miles. Now, what does that mean? Why is that important? Well, last week, Alex Sr. said something really important. He said, all of us are either running to Nineveh or running to Tarshish, which is the opposite direction. We're either going with God or we're running from him. And can we go back to that map real quick? This map is a literal picture of Jonah's repentance as he stops running from God and turns back to get on mission with him. It's a picture of journey, Jonah's journey back and it's a symbol of our own journeys back. Because here's the deal, repentance always requires a journey back. And that journey is not automatic. It takes time. Between chapters 2 and 3 was probably several weeks of Jonah just walking through many different environments, many different cities, 
uh, as he had to take time, not just to get back to where he started, but then actually do the thing. Just like God was pursuing Jonah so that Jonah would turn back from his sin and turn to God, God is pursuing us so that we would turn back from our sin and turn to God. But even though God forgives Jonah and God forgives us, and even though God gives Jonah a new mission and purpose and God gives us a new mission and purpose, our sin has consequences. And the journey back is longer than if we hadn't run away at all. When we decide to turn back to what God has called us to and stop running away, we get to rejoin God in his mission and purpose, but we don't get to start from where we were. This is a natural consequence of Jonah's sin and of our sin. So Jonah has to take a long road to get to Nineveh, in which he would have had much time to think about his time in the whale and about why he ran and about what God wants him to do. Now we move on to verse 3. Now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. Now, if you came to a training on evangelism or came to one of our mission meetings or read a book on outreach strategies, you would quickly learn this kind of evangelistic message is not one to model. There is no secret recipe here. This is just a straight up bad idea. It's not that it's untrue necessarily, but it's a message of condemnation in which there's literally no hope. Jonah doesn't say, God's going to destroy you, but if you turn in repentance, he'll forgive you. There's none of that. There's no mercy. There's no forgiveness. There's, he's just like 40 days and you're toast, right? He's motivating them to change through fear of death, not through love. And fear is a much shallower motivator than love. To me, this feels like, you know, if I'm God and I'm like, okay, so Jonah, I ask you to do this thing, you run away. I ask you to do it again, and then you go and do this? <laughs> you know? It feels like um, like the kid, you know, when you're like, clean your room, and they're like, no, I'm not going to do it. And you go, do it or I'm going to count to three, and they go, fine. You know, and just that bitter kind of, fine, but you're going to wish I hadn't. You know, like, I'm going to do what you ask, but you're not going to like it when I'm done. That kind of just like is the vibe I get from Jonah's, you know, uh, his poor obedience here, right? I'll technically do what you ask, Jesus, and check the box of like, I preached to them, you know, <laughs> but, but it's, not a good, it's not a good sermon and it's not a good message. Despite Jonah's time in the fish, despite Jonah's time on the road, he is technically repented, but he's not doing a good job at obeying. He's doing a bad job at what God has called him to do. None of what he says really captures God's heart. It's technically correct, but it's, it's not what the Lord sent him to do originally. And we'll see in the next chapter that Jonah is still motivated by his bitterness and his hatred for his enemies. He's motivated by his anger and his sense of justice that is turned into this desire for revenge. However, Despite his crappy obedience and his twisted motivations, something amazing happens here. The Ninevites believed God. A fast was proclaimed, and all of them from the greatest to the least put on sackcloth. When Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the proclamation he issued to Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything. Do not let them eat or drink, but let the people and animals be covered with sackcloth. Let everyone call urgently on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. Pause there. Evil ways and violence 
part of what he's talking about is these practices of Ishtar that the Ninevites are infamous for. To give up their evil ways and violence is to change religions. Understand that. The way that they were worshiping Ishtar, one of those ways was violence. They're known for their violence. He is saying we need to change our culture because we need to repent. This is deeply profound. And it's not just a personal decision. This is a shift in the culture of the Ninevites and in their religion. And then the king says, who knows? God may yet relent and with compassion turn from his fierce anger so we will not perish. When God saw what they did and how they turned from their evil ways, he relented and did not bring on them any of the destruction he had threatened. I love that. Who knows? God may yet relent with compassion in turn. Do you know why they don't know if that's going to happen? Because Jonah didn't tell them. They had faith despite Jonah's crappy obedience. Remember from week one, right? The Ninevites had the large temple of Ishtar. We just talked about that. But they would have had some idea of Yahweh, Jonah's God. We see this later in the Old Testament as Nineveh and um, Israel end up clashing again in a generation or two. They have an understanding of the Israelite religion. They have an understanding of who Yahweh was. But this is still totally mind-blowing. So let's take these elements and take them out of the ancient world and put them into our day. So you have this city that's an epicenter of a whole religion, the religion of Ishtar. And then you have Jonah, who's coming from Israel, and he's representing Yahweh, our God, right? So if we take those things and we put them into like a modern day, let's pick another religion that has like a city that it's at its epicenter. Let's say like Islam, for example, and the epicenter being Mecca, of course, right? So what do you think are the odds that if I showed up in Mecca, and just started shouting for a whole day, 40 more days and Mecca is going to be overthrown. What do you think are the odds that any person, just one person, comes to know and believe in Jesus because of that? I would guess that your guess is hovering right about 0%. You know? Now what do you think are the odds that 100% of Muslims in Mecca would turn to know Jesus because I'm just saying that you're going to get overthrown in 40 days if you don't repent? What do you think are the odds of that? I mean, there, it just, this is insane. This, can you imagine if I just told all the Muslims in Mecca God was going to wipe them out in 40 days and 100% of Muslims turned to believe in Jesus? That would be a miracle of miracles. How much of that, if that happened, if I did that, how much of that do you think would be because of my power? Give me a percentage, right? Throw that in the comments section. 13% maybe being a little generous, right? 0%. 0% of that would be because of my power. How much of that do you think would be because of God's power? 100%. Now, this creates a tension, right? Because Jonah is doing a bad job. And we have a lot of frustration in our culture, and certainly I have this frustration for Christians who do a bad job representing Jesus. Jonah's doing a bad job representing Yahweh. Why would God empower so miraculously such crappy obedience? Why would he do that? Doesn't he know Jonah still hates these people? Doesn't he know Jonah's not transformed yet? He doesn't love his enemies. Doesn't he know? Like, why would he let this schmuck do a miracle like that? 
And as I asked myself that question and kind of wrestled with that discontent, like, gosh, why would you empower such a broken guy to do this amazing thing? He's not a good representative of you. I, 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 I thought about a certain thing that happened two weeks ago. This is my daughter, Sophie. And um, Sophie is just the absolute best. Uh, this is her trying Mexican food for the first time. Uh, do you think she liked it? <laughs> well, what happens is Sophie, every time she wakes up from a nap or in the morning, what'll happen is, um, even before she could stand, she did some version of this, but what she does is we have a little sleep sack and she stands, gets up, stands, and puts her hands on the edge of her crib and she just starts talking. <laughs> Mama, you know, starts, just starts talking, waiting for one of us to come in and get her out of bed. And one of my favorite things to do in the morning is I'll stomp over, you know, to the door so she can hear me. And I'm like watching her on the little monitor and I'll just talk outside the door and go, is some, is someone awake? do I hear someone in there? And I see her little face light up like this, you know, like this little smile right here. She goes like, oh. <laughs> it's really giddy. And then I fiddle with the doorknob and go, is that Sophie? And then she gets even more giddy. And I slowly open the door and I kind of turn around the corner and she's trying to look around the corner. <laughs> and then when our eyes meet, I go, Sophie, hi, Sophie. And she just smiles and takes it in and she looks just like this, just like, she just loves watching me see her for the first time. She loves watching me find her for the first time that day. And I love watching her watch me find her. And uh, a couple, maybe a week and a half ago, she gets up from a nap and we do the routine. You know, she gets up and she comes to the crib and she looks over. And so I come over, stomp, stomp, stomp. Is someone awake? You know, click the little doorknob, I open it, and I go, Hi, Sophie! And she goes, Hi, Dad. And I just was overwhelmed. And I was like, Oh my gosh. And I just picked her up and I held her and I rocked her. And it was so, so sweet because she received my love and then she gave it back to me. And she received my joy at seeing her and she responded to it. And it was so sweet that she wasn't just having this one-sided relationship, but she wanted to reciprocate what I was giving her. It was just so, so beautiful. And the Ninevites may be Jonah's enemies, but they're God's kids. And God will do miracle upon miracle upon miracle to see his kids turn from destruction and uh, turn from their sin to repentance and salvation. Because God wants his kids to turn to him and say, hi, dad. Hi, dad. And God is not going to let Jonah's immaturity keep him from saving his kids. The Ninevites, just like Jonah, were made to know and be known by their father in heaven. So even if Jonah is going to obey with a crappy attitude and a chip on his shoulder, God is going to move heaven and earth to see his kids turn to repentance and be saved from their sins. He made a fish big enough to swallow Jonah so that Jonah would repent, and he's going to do a miracle big enough to see Nineveh repent. 
because that's just who he is. And this miracle, this empowering of a bitter prophet, in this story, we see the secret recipe to the Christian life, to this life with God. We see that our obedience plus God's power equals the impossible. God is on a mission for the lost. And he wants you and he wants I to join him on that mission. And he doesn't ask for our power. And it's obvious through Jonah, he doesn't require our power. He doesn't require our perfection. But what he does ask Jonah for and what he does ask us for is our obedience. If we obey God, God will do the impossible. God will see a fish swallow a man to bring him to repentance. God will see a whole other religion come to know him at 100% repentance. And God will do the impossible things in our family, our friends, our relatives, our neighbors, our co-workers, even our enemies. Like Jonah, we may still be in process. We may be screwed up. We may have screwed up. We may have blown it with our family. We may have blown it with our friends, our neighbors, our co-workers. Maybe we showed the, uh, a bad Jesus to them, not the true God. But God loves our families. God loves our friends. God loves our neighbors. God loves our workplace. God loves our Ninevehs. And he wants every single one of them to turn to him and say, Hi, Dad. Hi, Dad. So God empowered Jonah's obedience and God wants to empower our obedience this fall so that the lost causes in our lives might become found and might be filled with purpose and reconciled to the God of the universe being transformed from the inside out. So let me ask you, what in your life feels impossible right now? Is it a broken or a strange relationship with a family member? Maybe it's some, a mental illness in your family or in your friends or someone in your friends list. Maybe it's a wayward child. Maybe it's a loved one who's living far from God or in sin. Maybe it's a broken marriage. Maybe it's a financial crisis or a looming financial situation. Maybe it's a health crisis or your own physical frailty. Maybe it's a long-for family. Maybe it's someone whom you love who is so far from God, you just don't know how they will ever come back or find him to begin with. Whatever the impossible thing is, God can do the impossible. And he is not asking for your power this fall. He's asking for your obedience. And he's asking for my obedience. However... I will say, sometimes we get stuck on God changing a particular situation and we get stuck on him doing what we want. And we can accidentally ignore his mission or the things he wants to change because of the things we want to change. And I said this week when, and I'll say it again, when we believe in Jesus, the devil can no longer drag us to hell. So he tries to drag us into ourselves to make us self-absorbed, getting us to let our relationship with God be consumed by our mission for God, what we want him to do with his power, instead of us joining God on his mission, him doing what he wants to do with his power through us. And maybe you've been praying and fasting over a situation, over an impossible situation, and maybe it's been weeks, maybe it's been months, heck, maybe it's been years, and it, nothing's moving, nothing's changing. It just seems like God isn't listening because nothing's happening. And the question is not, why isn't God doing anything about this? The question is, what is God doing, and what do you need to do to join him? What do I need to do to join him? Sometimes God isn't moving because he's waiting on your obedience somewhere else. 
Sometimes he's not moving because he's waiting on someone else's obedience in this particular situation. Maybe it's just not the season and there are other things that need to grow or develop in order for God to move in the way that he wants to. One day we'll understand why it hasn't happened yet, but that day is not today. And here at LCL, we believe that God is still on mission even if the things we want to see change aren't changing yet. God is still on mission and we're going to join him on that mission and be patient in the things that haven't changed yet. Because God is going to do the impossible even if it's not the impossible thing I want right now. I mean, we did our home campaign about nine months ago and we've been actively looking for a permanent facility. Guess what? We still haven't found one. We've been doing our due diligence. We've been looking at different places. We have an ongoing running search that brings up new properties as they become available. And one day we'll know why it hasn't happened yet. But that's not today. And that's okay. We're going to remain faithful in prayer. We're going to remain faithful in looking. We're going to remain faithful in checking things out. But while we're waiting for a building, while we're waiting for a space to call home and to have as our, our anchor point to do ministry from in this community, God is still on mission. And he is not waiting till we get a building to start being on mission. He's on mission now. And we're going to join him on that mission until this comes to pass. And then we're going to keep joining him on that mission. So let me finish my story from the beginning. Chef Danny Meyer found his grandma's secret potato salad recipe. He wasn't able to replicate it. He finally found it. Um, you know, she passed away. He inherited it. Opening his new restaurant, he asked the sous chefs to follow her recipe. They make it, and it's perfect. And, you know, he takes that first bite. All the nostalgia comes rushing back. All the memories come rushing back. The smell of her home comes rushing back. And he's like, oh, my gosh, you guys nailed it. This is perfect. And they start laughing at him. And he said, what's so funny? And the sous chef took a bottle or jar of, of Hellman's mayonnaise. He puts it on the counter and he turns it. And the recipe for Hellman's mayonnaise printed on every single jar as the official potato salad recipe is the exact same recipe that was his grandma's secret recipe. <laughs> it had been right in front of him for his whole life for so many years. The secret recipe turns out wasn't a secret. It was printed in every grocery store in America for the whole time. And with so many things in life, the secret recipe is right in front of us. And the secret recipe to a life with God that is great is simply our obedience plus God's power equals the impossible. So let me ask, where is God calling you to obey today? Is it in a relationship with your family or with one of your friends or with someone else, maybe a coworker? Is there a sin you need to repent of, an addiction you need to ask for help in? Something you're doing that you know is not God's will for you, maybe a relationship you know you need to end. Or a relationship, maybe you know you need to start with an accountability partner, with a mentor, with someone else. Maybe you've lost sight of how God is inviting you to be on mission because you've been consumed with how you want him to be on your mission in some other area. What does it look like to obey and get back on track there? In the book of Jonah, God's cause is for the lost cause. And that is still true today. And so here at Life Church Livonia, we've developed this plan for the fall in order to join God on his mission. The first thing I want to draw your attention to is our France lists. I want to draw your attention to this list, this little tool we use to list out our friends, our relatives, our acquaintances, our neighbors, our coworkers, 
and our enemies and just go, God, who in my circle of influence do you want to come to know you? And we faithfully pray for those people. And I want you right now, if you don't have this card from us, just write it on a sheet of paper right now. And we're just going to pray. And and we're going to ask God who he wants to be on that list. Lord, show me, Lord, who you want to be on that list. Show me, Jesus, whom you want me to be faithful in prayer for. And God, I ask that you would give me uh, the boldness and insight to know how to partner with you in that. Bring their names, bring their faces to mind now. In the name of Jesus. Amen. My challenge to you is every day this fall, pray for this list. Be faithful in praying that they would come to know and love God with all their heart, mind, soul, and strength, and that they would love their neighbor as themselves. The next thing I want to invite you to do is join us at one of our mission meetings. This Wednesday is our next mission meeting. At these meetings, we have food together, we have fun together, we play games together, and then we work on tangible skills to help us reach out to our France list, to help us bless people in the name of Jesus and to live the message, not just talk about the message. And so there's a short teaching and we do a lot of time of connection working on certain skills. I can't encourage you enough to come to this. If you're brand new to Life Church Livonia and you want to get more deeply connected, come to the mission meeting. If you call Life Church Livonia home and you want to move deeper and figuring out, okay, how do I be on mission here at Life Church Livonia? Come to the mission meeting. We have it this Wednesday. We do provide food, so we need you to RSVP and you can do that on the digital bulletin. And lastly, we have our cider mills experience coming up here at Life Church Livonia on September 17th. And we're doing this to bless the community. Yes, I want you to come for sure, but I want you to bring someone from your France list who's far from God. We have a Facebook event with all the details on it. We have physical cards in person. We're trying to make it easy for you to invite your France list to this event because this event is a great way to help people have an amazing experience, especially if they have children or grandchildren. It's such an easy way to set them up for a great win that we did all the work and they can take the credit. And then we're connecting them to our church community. So please invite people to this cider mill event. I wanna come back to that first verse I mentioned. I said, hey, hold on, hold on to this, we're gonna come back to it. And this is what the verse says. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Go to the great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. Here's what I want you to see about this. God called Jonah once, Jonah ran away. He, he ignored the call. And after Jonah's repentance, God doesn't just say, hey, remember what I said before? God re-invites him on mission and God gives him a second call. The word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. Just like God called Jonah back, giving him a second chance, God is calling you back, giving you a second chance today. Is there a way you've gotten off mission and you've become focused on yourself? Maybe you've been far from God, doing your own thing, and you know the way you're living is not what he wants from you, for you, and you've been running. God is calling you back and giving you a second chance. Maybe you've never believed in Jesus before and don't have a relationship with him. God is calling you home. The gospel is simply this, that Jesus, that God became incarnate, put flesh on in Jesus, came from heaven to earth to live a perfect and sinless life. The Bible describes sin as debt, our sin, the things we do wrong, the things we do contradictory to God and his design, that this is like debt. And we know about debt. We have a lot of it as Americans, right? 
In order to pay off the debt, we have to have more money than the debt is worth. And so if Jesus is going to pay for all the debt of sin, for all human beings of all time, he has to have a greater sum than all the lives of all people, meaning he has to come before all the lives of all people and he has to be after the lives of all people. And he has to be sinless. And so Jesus came from heaven to earth. And when he died on the cross, he paid the debt for all sin, for all people, for all time. And when he rose from the dead, he rose so that if we believe in him and say, confess with our mouth that Jesus is Lord and we follow him with our lives. I'm not just talking about believing him. The demons believe Jesus died and rose from the dead. The demons believe Jesus is the son of God, okay? We want to follow Jesus and believe better than demons. So it's not just believing that those things are true. It's living like it and responding to the call, follow me, do what I do. And as we follow Jesus as Lord, he transforms us from the inside out and he brings life and life to the full. And God is offering you that life today. And whether you're repenting because you've run away, whether you've never known Jesus, or whether you're a follower of Jesus and you just realize you've been distracted from the mission, I want to invite you to pray with me right now. Lord, I hear your call a second time right now, inviting me into purpose, inviting me into mission, inviting me into something greater than myself. And Lord, I say yes. Forgive me for the ways, Lord, in which I've been distracted, in which I've been lost, in which I've been running. And God, I give myself to you now. I ask that you would show me the right next step to take in following you as Lord of my life. Forgive my sins. Give me a fresh start. And Lord, I want this life and life to the full that you claim to have. Holy Spirit, I ask that you would fill me and that you would lead me to what to do next. In the name of Jesus, amen. If you just prayed with me, please reach out to us. I would love for you to get baptized. We have baptisms coming up in a few weeks. Please reach out to me about that. You can reach out to us via our digital bulletin. We want to walk alongside you as we follow God on mission together. See you next week because Jonah has a little bit more to say. Welcome to Communion. In communion, we celebrate Jesus' death and resurrection, and we physically participate in this sacrament. We physically participate in a spiritual reality. We believe that Jesus' death and resurrection truly does give us new life. And as we observe this sacrament of communion, and we intake physical food and drink, that physical food and drink also give us new life, creating new cells in our body. And this is a symbol of what our belief in Jesus does on a spiritual level, a mental level, an emotional level, and yes, even a physical level. On the night that Jesus was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it. And he told his disciples, whenever you have this Passover meal where you celebrate that God has freed you from slavery, you do this in remembrance of me. And I would encourage you now at home, please take and eat. Jesus, we just bring our scattered senses and minds to you as we eat this bread. Father, we just pause and know that it is through your broken body that we have hope, that we have eternal life, that we have richness and fullness of life in this present life. 
and that we have redemption and reconciliation. And Lord, we just confess our sins right now and we accept anew that gift. After the bread, Jesus took the cup and he told his disciples, whenever you drink this, drink this in remembrance of me for this is my blood shed for you. Lord, we just receive your blood that washes us clean, that frees us from sin, that is over the doorposts of our hearts, protecting us from death. And Lord, we just worship you for that. And we just receive this gift afresh today. Thank you for your death and resurrection. Thank you for your sacrifice. It is in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.